chapter 1 toward the end of it, you know it as Mary's Magnificat or her Magnificent Song, which begins, My soul does magnify the Lord. But do you know what you don't know? Well, of course not. And the only reason we don't know is because we don't pay attention to where we find the answer. Where did Mary get her answers from, right? Many things are, in fact, settled for us in the Word of God. We struggle with where we get our answers. We struggle with where we might go to find solutions. But you got a question? Go to the Word of God. I think you'll find a lot of confirmed responses. Just as it was given to Mary, it was confirmed by the prophets It was declared by the angels, the shepherds rejoiced, and the wise men tracked it down. But for all the confirmation, it would seem to me that people are more willing rather to prefer to go to great lengths in order to find any other option possible than that they would have to believe in this Word of God. Basic questions settled for us in the Word of God. Well, John speaks with great certainty, and we haven't yet finished our study in the book of 1 John, so that's where I'm taking you this morning. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, the last book, excuse me, the last chapter and the last section. So we'll finish up there in 1 John chapter 5, 27 times in his little book, 27 times in the book of 1 John, this word know is used. It means to have a settled understanding of a question. You got a question about work, you got a question about marriage, you got a question about you name it. There are so many things that we can find answers to if we'll start with the Word of God. That's what it means to know, to have a settled understanding of a matter, to know. Five times uh, in this one chapter, chapter 5, 27 times throughout the book, to have a settled understanding. You know it. It's a word we've seen before back in chapter 2 where he talks about our obedience to the Word of God settles our love for one another. You want to know why we don't love the way we should? Why we don't care for one another the way we should? Probably because we're not spending much time in the Word of God as we should. Well, John now uses the same term to know, to settle for us five fundamental facts that we'll see in the verses before us. So if you want to count down the time, you could do that. Number one, number one is the deity of Christ. You see it here in chapter 5. We pick it up with verse 6, and we'll read through verse 10. First of all is the deity of Christ. We're coming up to Christmas. The birth of Christ was on this wise. It was the virgin birth through Mary and conceived of the Holy Ghost. And we see some of that mentioned here, but verse 6. This is He, Jesus, that came by water and blood. And some would say this is the natural birth of Christ, but it was a virgin birth. But we'll see a little more about it. But even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. So He's kind of making a a point about this water, natural birth maybe, but blood, what is this? And it is the Spirit that bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three witnesses that bear record in heaven, The Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. There are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. So there's three significant testimonies to the truth of who Jesus is. These three agree. 
if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. So my understanding among those that I see and hear and read in Testament makes more clear my understanding of what God is about. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. So the one witness of the Holy Spirit is in you. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. Now at no time are you called upon to blind faith. No one is ever asking you to accept something that has not been witnessed to as a settled matter and even settled in heaven as a fact. Jesus was not just a good man, born of water or natural birth. If that were all he were, the record may or may not convince you until someone or something else better came along. If you say, well, that was really great, it's a really great story, really cool thing that happened there, it's been a really great story to have at Christmas time, it's all these good feelings, but then something else better might come along. No, the record is clear. He was and is the only begotten Son of God. Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea, and he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And the disciples responded, some think you're John the Baptist. Well, what had happened to John the Baptist? Right? His head was served up on a silver platter. That's, that's fact. That's, that's where we get that phrase from, served up on a silver platter. There it was. So he's dead. But some think you're John the Baptist, so come back to life. Some think you're Isaiah, Isaiah, it says. Some think you're, so this old prophet, or even Jeremiah. Some think you're Jeremiah. And then he said, but who do you think that I am? And how did the disciples respond? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I find it interesting that when you talk about Jesus, people would rather believe in the reincarnation of an old prophet than to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Right? We'd rather believe anything else than the settled, sure word of God. Well, the deity of Christ is absolutely necessary to our faith. It's confirmed here by what John calls three witnesses. As anyone knows, it's easy to get any two people to agree on almost anything, right? I mean, I can get a couple of you, and you and I might agree on something, right? I mean, but to get three independent witnesses to all agree to the exact same thing, that's what an attorney would call beyond a reasonable doubt, right? You get three people to agree to something independently, and it all makes sense, you would say, well, that's beyond a reasonable doubt. So we have three witnesses here. Now let me just pause for a second, If you, depending on what you have in your lap right there. Verse 7 may not even be there. I, I probably read some verse, and you may say, well, it's not in my Bible. And verse 7, just in fairness to the old manuscripts, if I may just suggest to you, verse 7 is not in the oldest manuscripts It's written in a margin as an attempt to offer some explanation. And I'll I'll maybe come back to that just a little bit. But John is not giving to us six witnesses, so three on earth and three in heaven. It's not not that there's six. There There are three witnesses on earth, and they are confirmed in heaven. Same, all right? So John giving to us, he would give to us these witnesses on earth. In fact... If I ask you the question, which would confirm more your faith? Something that is unseen in heaven or something that has been seen on earth, confirmed among men, recorded in Scripture? Which would confirm your faith more? 
what people have seen, what people have talked about. As the disciple says, what we've seen and handled, right, of the Word of God. So these witnesses are confirming our faith. Our faith is based upon the deity of Jesus, confirmed by three undeniable facts that are true in heaven, have been witnessed on earth, the first witness of water and blood. John links them together there in verse 6. You might consider the necessity of the virgin birth, the water, the natural birth, if you will, in order to appear as the sacrifice for our, the blood sacrifice, right, for our sins. Some use this to describe being born again, first by water and then by the Spirit. Nicodemus, when he came to Jesus by night, do you remember what Jesus said there, except a man be born of water and the Holy Spirit, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven? But I won't argue with, with the concept. If, if you think, well, that's just talking about natural birth. It's not, it's not the, no sense in arguing about that. But I would just take you a little bit further to understand. So you can't suggest, I mean, how confirming is it to my faith to say, well, first you have to be born, then you have to be born again. Does, to be born is kind of like, goes without saying, doesn't it? So I don't know that you being born confirms your faith. That, that doesn't, right? So what is, this, what is this talking about? Well, let me ask you the question. What does water always refer to? When you read in scriptures and you read about illustrations, what and who is it always referring to? It's always referring to the Word of God and Jesus in particular, the living Word, right? The living Word, the water. So I don't think that being born is a confirmation of my faith. I mean, that just tells me, I, yeah, I've got life, but I have to be born again. And I am born by the water, the Word of God, Jesus, the living Word, and by blood, who died on the cross for my sins, who? Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for my sins, and it's confirmed by who? The Holy Spirit. Right? So we've got three witnesses that confirm our faith. Number one is Jesus himself, the living word, and the Bible itself, the water, the living word, the water. We have it confirmed in Scripture. We have it confirmed by the blood of Christ, the sacrifice on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's confirmed in us by the Holy Spirit. So we take it at face value. We find the blood, the water linked together in our salvation there on the cross. In John 19, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, what, what took place? Do you remember that? Because what would happen on the cross, you remember the illustration? We'll come back to it on Good Friday when we come to it. Remember the, what would happen on the cross? They would hang, right? And they would support themselves by their legs, but they're nailed there on their feet as well. And so they would sometimes, what would happen? Right? They would begin to give out. And what happens when that takes place? They start to suffocate. And so if they're not yet dead, what would they do? Break their legs. They would immediately suffocate to death, and they're, they're gone. But when they came to Jesus, and in this was even a prophecy, that not a bone in his body would be broken. And so when they come to Jesus, do they break his legs? No, they found that he was already dead. And what did the one fellow do? He took a spear, pierced him in his side, and what came forth? Blood and water, right? Mingled together. So again, you see the confirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ, who he is. 
But even in verse 8, he begins to separate them out. These three bear witness, the Spirit, the water, the blood. Jesus, the living word, the book you hold in your lap, the living word of God, that 40 men would write, independently write, 66 books in this thing we call the Bible, and they would all make sense. They would all agree with one another, and they give confirmation to who Jesus is. So then we can still say, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by, and hearing by the word of God. That's what confirms our faith. But then he goes on and says that third witness, we, the Holy Spirit, we first heard this when the living word became flesh. Remember when Jesus was born? He was born of the Holy Ghost, right? Conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. We saw this again when Jesus went down into the water, was baptized by John the Baptist. Do you remember what we then saw? The Holy Spirit descending like a dove. Remember that? And then we heard a voice from heaven, right? The Father himself spoke. And then on the cross, remember when he died and he said, it is finished. And the Father himself had turned away. Remember Christ says, Father, why have you forsaken me? The sins of my life were there on the cross and the Father turns away. The same three witnesses we see on earth are also confirmed in heaven, right? So we have the Holy Spirit. We have the voice of God descending. We have the voice of God speaking. The Holy Spirit takes the word of God, brings it to bear upon the hearts of men as confirmation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And all these witnesses, the Father is present. So even that verse 7, the marginal note that may be there in some scripture at the baptism We heard Jesus speaking from heaven at the cross. We see Jesus speaking to God in heaven. In Jeremiah 33, that all who call upon the Lord, he will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which you what? You don't know. Without the confirmation of the word of God, the confirmation that Jesus is who he said, did what he has declared to be true, has been confirmed in the scriptures for you, and even now, in your own heart, in your own spirit, confirmed by the Holy Spirit, when you accepted this truth, and you said, I believe this, now the Holy Spirit takes up in your life as well. Well, on the top of anything we would want to do is to pray and ask God to forgive us of our sins. Then to understand not only the truth of God's Word as it's confirmed in the Scriptures for us, but then also notice the destiny of Christians beginning with verse 11. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is where? Where is it found? In His Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that does not have the Son does not have life. And these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. I know that I have eternal life. I know it, and so can you. The destiny of believers is on the record. It's written for all who believe on the name of the Son of God. Eternal life comes by way of Jesus. It cannot be earned. Ephesians 2, we know that. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, even verse 10 For by grace are you saved through faith, not of 
yourselves. Why? It's the gift of God, not of works, because what would we tend to do? Boast, right? So we know that we're created in Christ Jesus under good works, but we're not saved by good works. We're saved by the truth of God's Son, Jesus Christ. But eternal life is not so much what I have as if I have to hold on to it. Sometimes we get this a little confused, and we, we kind of end up with, well, I've got to hold on to this. I've got to, I've got to make sure. I've got to do all the things. Just I know what I believe, but I've got to make sure I do, you know, whether it's communion from last week or the baptismal service or the I've got to be in church so many times. I hope you are, <laughs> and I hope you are here for communion, and I hope you know, but that's not going to save you. It's not going to save you. It doesn't keep you saved. To understand that none of that saves us, it's not so much about what I'm holding on to, but who's got me, and that's Jesus Christ. So in John chapter 10, when, he described, when Jesus describes there that you are in Jesus, right? You're in me, and that by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has hold of you. And then Jesus goes on to say, and my Father, I am in my Father. Can you think of an any more secure place to be, any more secure basis to say I'm saved than to know that what Jesus has done, he's got hold of me, and the Father has hold of him. I am secure in Jesus Christ. I know that I have eternal life because of Jesus Christ. Warren Weir's because some of these things have you look back through uh, chapter 2, everyone who practices righteousness is born of God. Chapter 3, we know that we have passed from death into life because of God the Father. Everyone that loves God is born of God, chapter 4, and here in chapter 5, there in verse 4. Anything born of God cannot be held down by the world. We know these things to be true. Warren Weir's because these marks birthmarks, if you will, of the believer. Do you have any of these marks in your life? Do you love one another? Do you love God? Do you love to be among God's people? Do you know that you've been passed from death unto life? Do you know these things to be true? Do you have these birthmarks? When you face the final enemy called death, you can have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you know the destiny of your soul, you need not fear life's greatest enemy. You need not face it without hope as 1 Thessalonians tells us, as others who don't know this truth, who don't know what they don't know, but you know it to be true because he's in you, and you know it to be true because you've read the word of God, you know it, and because you know this to be true, you have a hope that is beyond the circumstance and even life and death itself. Well, this assurance of our own destiny, of Christ's deity, Notice the display of confidence that we have beginning with verse 14. And so, this is the confidence that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And we know that if He hears us, then whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of Him. The display of confidence for the believer, when we learn, as it says in 1 Peter 5, to cast all of our cares upon him. Why? Do you know that to be true, right? Do you know that he... Are you going to tell anybody your problems if you're not quite sure they care? Right? You're just not quite sure they care about you? Then you're not going to tell them, right? You're not going to tell them your deepest secrets and your problems, your concerns, but we can cast all our cares upon him because we know that he cares for us. Our confidence grows as we hear the Old Testament stories. We know how he helped the great 
patrons of the past, if you will, right? The patriarchs. We see what God has done there. Do you think your problem is worse than theirs? If God could help them, don't you think He'll help you? Our confidence is renewed each time in the Gospels, how Jesus helped His followers. We know that He can help us too. Jesus told the story about a not a hair on your head, right? Without Him knowing about it. Not a bird falls from the sky. And then He goes on to say, don't you think that you are greater than those little sparrows? Well, of course you are. Our confident expectation is confirmed, as it says in Jeremiah, that we can call upon Him. Now, I've asked you this before, and you've never known them, but the little children's song says it best. Do you know this one? Why worry when you can pray? Well, some of you have heard that, that song. Any other children's song I've ever given you, you didn't know. But why worry when you can pray? So the top of the list of anything, as I mentioned, is that we would pray. Hebrews 4 says we can come boldly unto the throne of grace. I don't have to worry, wonder, doubt. Is God hearing me? Will God listen when I pray? Does God know what I'm going through? He does, and He will. He'll listen, and He'll give you encouragement and help. But you know, there are some things, and I'll just mention them in passing, there are some things that does hinder our prayer. You know that, right? You know that you have bold, full access to the throne of God. You know that to be true. But do you also know there's a few things that can keep or hinder that relationship? And, of course, the top, you all know this one in Psalm 66, if I regard iniquity in my heart, so sin in my life, right, the Lord does not hear me. And so sin in my life, unconfessed sin, can hinder that relation. Even though I have confidence that he will listen to me, the first thing I may need to do is say, Lord, I am sorry. I am so sorry for how I have failed. Second thing that can hinder this relationship in prayer is that when you harbor, as it says in Matthew 5, when you harbor something between you and another person, I know what they did. Well, maybe I don't know what they did. I get that. I don't know what they did. I probably don't want to know what they did. But when you have anger and resentment in your heart against another person, do you know that hinders your relationship with God as well? So sin on my part, and it may be sin on their part, but I've got an anger issue with them. That hinders my relationship with God. And the third thing, again, just in passing, is that when I pray for all the wrong reasons, in fact, even suggested here in verse 14, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Do you think there's times when we ask things according to our will? Do you think there are times, maybe we get it backwards sometimes? So we tend to pray with things like, I'm sick, so I want to be... Well, I, I don't have a job, so I need a, right? I pray for it, just naturally. But what we ought to be praying for is, Lord, what is your will in my life? In this sickness, is there a way that I can glorify you? In this transition of my life, is there a way that I can better identify with someone else and their need? So, Lord, what is it your will? What is your will in this circumstance of my life as it is right now? Before I say, God, get me out of this, Lord, in this where I am right now, what is your will? What do you have to teach me right now? And if nothing else, it's probably a little bit of patience. Prayer is the means by which the believer himself keeps himself in line with the will of God. 
And that's the most important reason for prayer. Confidence in the day of trouble. If you gain confidence in prayer, then rise up and do it. Rise up and do it. Wholeheartedly as unto the Lord, knowing that He's heard you, you have the petitions, He's going to see you through it. And then as you move out in confidence for the Lord, you, you'd better know the devices that are going to be facing you. Look at verse 16. If any man see his brother sin, a sin which is not unto death. Now you all, you've heard this phrase, sin unto death. We'll, we'll come to it. So you see somebody that's done something and it's not unto death. He shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin that is unto death, but I'm not saying to pray for that. Verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God, so we're talking to believers, keepeth himself, and that wicked one cannot touch him. Verse 18, verse 19, and we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in what? Sin or wickedness. See, if you ignore the conviction that comes with sin, it is possible to get so caught up in the circumstances of your life that you're of absolutely no good to God anymore. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? And this concept of a sin unto death, and not a particular thing you've done, but a lifestyle of ignoring God, ignoring His call to you. These are children of God. Okay, We're talking to Christians. Did you know that it's possible to live such a life of disobedience that you have no benefit, use to God? Does that sound harsh to you? It does, doesn't it, a little bit? It sounds a little bit harsh. But do you remember Moses? You remember Moses? What happened to Moses? All he did was got a little angry. And he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. What's the big deal? I mean, they still got the water they needed. But what happened to him? He had to die before they went into the promise. And they, and they went then into the promised land. He didn't get the, he died before they saw the promised land. Well, you say that's not fair. It doesn't seem right. Sin unto death, huh? What about Ananias and Sapphira? Now we're in the New Testament. What happened to them? All they did was lied about their offering. Well, there's a little more to it than that. But they lied about their offering and dropped dead at the doorway. Now, don't you think that made people think a little more about their offerings? <laughs> I better be honest with this, right? Do you know what you don't know otherwise? What about in the communion service, when you read in the epistles, you find that in the communion service, 1 Corinthians, there were people who showed up missing because they had come and taken of communion for all the wrong reasons, without confessing their sin, knowing that what they should do, but they wouldn't do it. And they would take of communion for the show of it. And they showed up missing next week. So their name shows up in the obituary of the newspaper, right? Now, don't you think that made people think a little bit differently about communion? I better take this a little more seriously. Conviction of sin. See, otherwise you wouldn't know what you don't know. It wouldn't be a big deal to you. What's, what's the bother? Conviction for sin can help you know what you may not otherwise know and convince you, convince you of your need for obedience. This discipline is not upon sinners who are so bad that there's no hope unto them. That's not the sin unto death. Well, they're so bad 
God could never save them, a sin unto death. We're not talking about unbelievers. They're already condemned because they've not believed in the name of the Son of God. You're not sent to hell because you did really bad. And you're not sent to heaven because you did really good. No, you believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So if you believe in Jesus, that's how you, that's how you get into heaven. Do you know that to be true? So to understand that this death falls upon those who have crossed the clear boundary between God's usefulness as a child of God and those who are no longer useful to God. And J. Vernon McGee gives a simple little illustration just to sort of help you understand it. So the mother in the house, you know how we used to, we used to go out and play and don't come home till your mother calls you? You ever? No? Yeah? And you didn't worry about the kids being outside because that's the place they ought to be. We don't want to keep them inside and safe. We let them get outside and play and enjoy. But the two boys, these two neighbor boys, got in a fight. Now, you never got in a fight. But these two neighbor boys got in a fight. So the mother yells to the, right? The mother yells to them. She says, Johnny, you guys stop that fighting. Now, which one of the kids did she yell to? Her own son, right? So Johnny sort of gets the message, but, you know, they can't get along, and they're still they're back at it again. And the mom says, Johnny, stop, or I'm going to call you inside. Well, it used to be that was the worst thing you could do to a kid was bring him inside. You can't ground a kid nowadays, can you? You ground them, tell you what, they've got everything inside. It doesn't matter to them. Finally, they, they just wouldn't stop, and the mom goes outside and grabs Johnny and brings him home. What happened to the other kid? That's of no consequence to her. Because that's not my child. What son is he whom the father chasteneth not? Are you a child of God? Do you know? Do you know that it's possible to be in such a condition of disobedience that God would call you home? Because you're his child. Don't, don't give me the excuse of what someone else did and that's what made you like you are. No, you have a responsibility. Do you know the responsibility you have before God as his child and your heavenly father? Well, as a child of God, the believer simply cannot live in sin and expect to get away with it, at least not for long. And so there at the end of verse 18, though, just be confident that one thing the devil cannot do and what is that? Without God's sense of approval, the devil cannot take your life. Right? Can't do it. That's why every time I get on an airplane, I say, Lord, if it's not your will for me to die, all these other people ought to be very thankful. Because <laughs> the plane ain't going to go down. But the devil does have many devices, doesn't he? He can't touch your life, but he has many devices. In fact, we saw them there. If you go back to chapter 2, we saw them there in chapter 2. Look at verse 16. For all that's in the world, the devices of the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father. Who's, who's it of? It's of the devil. It's of the world. So we know that there are devices in this world that the devil can use. He can't touch my life, but he's going to try to ruin it, and he's going to try to make, put me in a place where I'm of no use to God any longer. A believer yielding to temptation will bring conviction. It may render us useless before God and even end in a premature death. If you don't know this, what would you possibly do? Is it really a big deal? Who's going to see? Who's going to know? 
But what's the big problem? If you don't know, if you don't know what you don't know, you might end up in a life of disobedience to God because you thought it was not a big deal. But we have it clearly for us in the Word of God. One last thing that we must know is the deception, and this is a great one for this time of year, the deception of covetousness. Verse 20, And we know that the Son of God is come, and we know that He has given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life, and He leaves you this last little phrase, children, Keep yourself from what? But you got to have it, don't you? <laughs> oh, you just think if you had that, it would really make your Christmas. If you had that, it would make your vacation. If you just could have that, and that's what an idol is. That's all it really is. But in the context of his writing, to understand he's likely writing to the believers at Ephesus. And there was a temple in Ephesus that at the time was one of the seven great wonders of the world. And there they would carve idols. That was one of their chief means of support. They would carve idols and sell them. What we know about idols, what do you know about idols? Is that they know nothing. The one thing we know about idols is that idols know nothing. So we know that little image isn't going to make you smarter. That thing you think you have to have, it won't make you better looking. I'm sorry, I know what the commercial says. I know that they say it's going to bring you confidence, it's going to make you happier, but guess what? They don't know. And there is nothing that can bring you to understand what God has done. According to Psalm 115, idols can't teach us anything. They certainly can't make us happy. Perhaps the worst thing about all is that instead of becoming more like what the Creator intended me to be, I become more like what the idol is like. What is that? Stupid. <laughs> Sorry. Forgive my French as we say, but yeah, just foolish, right? In our disbelief, our, our lack of understanding, our lack of obedience, we become just like the idol. Lifeless, silly, foolish. How does Psalm 115 describe them? Deaf, dumb, blind, and they that make them are just like them. Psalm 115. Well, the reason so many people don't know what they don't know is because they keep substituting idols. They keep stu substituting stuff of this world. They keep substituting other pleasures for what God intends for us. John chapter, 1 John chapter 5, you see it there in verse 20. We know that the Son of God is come, right? We know that. We know that His name is Jesus the Christ. We know that it's true. We know that it's been confirmed. We know that we have eternal life. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know that you have eternal life? Do you know what you would never otherwise know if it wasn't told to you in this book. There is a Savior. His name is Jesus. Do you know my Jesus? Will you pray with me?
I don't do invitations very often, but I'm just going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And that's just a way to sort of shut things out right now, just kind of shut things out a little bit. That's the only reason kids always ask, Preacher, why do, we, why do we close our eyes? It's just kind of to give us a little focus. We're not quiet enough. We don't pause long enough. And we are very busy. So in this one moment, just this one moment of today, ask yourself, do you know Jesus as he is revealed to us in the word of God? Mary, did you know? Oh, yes, she did. Put your name there. Do you know? Do you know why Jesus came? Do you know what he would do on your behalf? Have you ever trusted him as your personal Savior? Do you know that you have eternal life? If you don't, you can know right now. No one's looking around. No one's worrying. You're just praying to, in your own heart right now. And you say, dear Jesus, something like this, in your own words, in your heart, I know I'm a sinner. I've worked really hard to have a better life, and I just keep failing. Lord, I trust in you for the payment of my sins. Forgive me. Save me today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen.